Bookworm Games, Episode 27, Not All Who Wander Are Lost Underground. Welcome back. This is Wesley Schantz. I'm still working on finding some time to record with a few more conversation guests, the first of whom will provide us with Episode 25. For now, please join me in falling into the Lost Underworld for this week's episode. But first, a few announcements. Introducing monetization. Like everyone on the internet, Anchor and its investors are understandably trying to find a way to make some money. I'm not sure how this works, but though making and listening to podcasts are free, advertising and supporting them seem to involve money, which my friend Ego Sticka tells me used to be these little pieces of paper and metal, but increasingly is just a special kind of encrypted data. Signum U has been operating for years on donations, and Peterson recently mentioned that his online university is planned to be crowdfunded, and both of those are well worth supporting. Over at Signum, they're reading Mort d'Arthur and sketching plots for an imaginary Silmarillion TV show, discussing Edward Scissorhands, wrapping up the Wrinkle in Time summer camp, and Peterson's Maps of Meaning, which I wrote about at some length on the New School Notes blog, has now made bestseller lists in audiobook form. So if you'd like to give to this humble enterprise, uh, you can do so. You can also support, like, share the History of Western Thought platform uh, for promoting podcasts and blog posts that's run by my friend Alex Schmid. Our new podcast on Final Fantasy VII with our friend Vince is up and going. And now that Sarah is settled in Seattle, we're back on the Harry Potter Book Two train as well. Meanwhile... This is the Earth's belly button, declares one of the talking rocks in Lumine Hall. It's a small thing, but that's almost verbatim what one of Brick Road's signs back in Dungeon Man says. You are standing right around my belly button, Brick Road. Thus, we are prompted to connect the two and ask what gives. It seems like the talking rocks approach the same goal that Brick Road does, that fusion of human and dungeon or work of art, from the other direction. They start as an inorganic stone, which somehow becomes sentient and speaks. And the earth itself is akin to the human form and tickled by this kinship. Before the end of the game, Ness and his friends will likewise undergo such a transformation. But it's been touched upon throughout the game, as places speak to you, from your sanctuary, the earth, not only a belly, but a heart and memory. The dungeons and other locations, too, communicate information, whether literally in signs and message boards or implicitly through their design. Puzzles, mazes, atmospheric and aesthetic choices, which convey above all the message that this world is the sort of place that can and should be explored. But something interesting happens at this point. The ambiguous message of Lumine Hall, as we looked at last time, serves at once to draw this parallel between people and things, and yet to increase the distance between Ness and the player. It highlights the strangeness of seeing Ness's thoughts articulated, and to the articulation taking place not in speech, but in the telepathic bioluminescent growth on the rock wall, presumably the same kind of rock which arises as talking rocks elsewhere, so that our attention is drawn to the ambiguity of the spoken language of the game's text throughout, how it is never actually spoken aloud. With a few musical exceptions, the Oke de Skuka and Yao in the beginning, and I Miss You in the song at the very end. 
Instead, it is all a matter of the light and the words which can bridge that distance. The game itself, being electronic, is just such a mixture of inorganic elements and information meant for the human player. We know little enough about ourselves to leave it an open question to what extent we are, too. The content of Ness's thoughts have to do with a doubt which might be creeping up on the player, too, at this point. Soon I'll be, soon I'll be, soon I'll be, what will happen to us? He's concerned with the imminent end of the adventure, which, let's not forget, has constituted his whole relationship with these great friends. It's like the end of summer and the start of the school year approaching, or, to look at it from the other direction, he could be thinking about it like the final exams approaching at the end of the school year, facing the final boss, Gigas. We don't get any more specifics because Ness's thoughts along these lines are interrupted at this point by his noticing the writing the player has been reading. What this player is thinking about is whether he'll be able to see the game through. This is the seventh of eight sanctuary spots. When I played a lot of video games as a kid, I nevertheless rarely beat the games, that is, completed their final challenges and got to see the screen that said, the end. And a part of it was that I was frustrated by how difficult and demanding they got towards the end. But a big part of my not finishing games was also just like Ness's question. For then I'd have to ask, what next? What will happen next? And if it was just another game that happened, wouldn't that be disappointing after Earthbound? Players of this game waited years for a sequel, which is a whole epic story in itself. Upon the darkness lifting at the bottom of the drop-down-the-hole sound effect, jolly dinosauric music picks up, and you find your party reduced to a few diminutive, colorful pixels at the center of a pastel, verdant world which surrounds you suddenly much larger. Once more, the game emphasizes the distance between the player and Ness, visually. It's a bit like during the brief sea journey from Toto to Scaraba, only this time you can control the party as normal. The Lost Underworld is a jungle enclosed, and a veldt flowing with glittering lakes and erupting with geysers, encircled by a wall of mountains whose inroads across the map form the contours of a maze for you to follow on your way. And outside of those mountains, the darkness absolutely impossible to illuminate now that the Hawkeye has been used, impossible to reach anyhow, might make you wonder if you are underground and everything around these mountains is still some deeper abyss, where is the source of light, such that it lights your area, but not that other? Possibly it comes down from Lumin Hall, or through some large aperture far beyond the deep darkness in Tenda Village. Possibly it is an after-effect of having used the Hawkeye, but no one mentions the light suddenly breaking in recently. In terms of historical and literary precursors here, the Lost Underworld clearly owes something to conventions established in the hollow earth sci-fi subgenre, starting back with Jules Verne again in Journey to the Center of the Earth, and then to Arthur Conan Doyle with his up-esque plateau of unextinct dinosaurs in the Lost World. But the Journey to the Underworld motif goes back way further if you think of the myths of Persephone, Heracles, the epics of Homer, Virgil, Dante, Milton, or, more to the point here perhaps, to the comedic treatment in Aristophanes' Frogs. This comes from near the beginning, Dionysus and Heracles are speaking. 
So, then I'm sitting on deck, see, reading this new book, Andromeda, by Euripides. All of a sudden it hits me over the heart, a craving. You can't think how hard. A craving, huh? A big one? Little one, Molon size. A craving? For a woman? No. For a boy? No, no. For a, a man? Shush, shush, shush. Well, what about you and Cleisthenes? Don't laugh at me, brother dear. Truly I am in a bad way. I've got this craving. It's demoralizing me. What kind of craving, little brother? I don't know how to explain. I'll paraphrase it by a parable. Did you ever feel a sudden longing for baked beans? Baked beans, yeah. Gosh, yes, that's happened to me a million times. Shall I give you another illustration? Expound this one? Don't need to expound baked beans to me. I'll get the point. Well, that's the kind of craving that's been eating me. A craving for Euripides. You mean dead and all? And nobody's going to persuade me to give up my plan of going after him. Way to Hades, down below? Absolutely. Belower than that, if there's anything there. What do you want? What I want is a clever poet. For some of them are gone. The ones who are left are bad. Again, that's in the uh, beginning of Frogs, played by Aristophanes, uh, and the translation by Aerosmith, Lattimore, and Parker. Uh, in video games, too, early made use of the vertical orientation, getting from up to down or down to up to give the player a clear goal. Mario's first appearance in Donkey Kong and all the subterranean levels in later Mario games come to mind. The Final Fantasies in most RPGs also make use of the underworld motif. An interesting one being the Earthbound-inspired Undertale, which concerns a human child fallen safely on a bed of flowers in the underground world of monsters. But within Earthbound, we've heard about the lost underworld ever since Foresight, with its replica dinosaur bones at the museum and the old museum-goer wishing he might see real dinosaurs. They've been sighted in southern Scarabo, we're told, and someone in Toto, I think, claims to have seen one. The hieroglyphs direct your steps thither. The Tessie watchers, of course, are similarly enthralled by the possibility. A lot of kids go through a phase of being interested in dinosaurs. I know I dug a big hole looking for bones and gems in my backyard year after year. There must be something about finding not just treasure, but life from underground, reviving or discovering yet alive the past which was thought to have died. And that's what the motto for this series, taken from Shakespeare's play The Winter's Tale, is about. Oh, she's warm. If this be magic, let it be an art lawful as eating. To get where you need to go in the lost underworld is tricky since everything here is so big that each individual thing is so small you can hardly see it. It's hard to recognize the present boxes. At first they look like white villas, but they encourage your exploration anyhow, getting through the hash marks and blobs that might be trees and tall grasses, and running into others you wouldn't expect could block your path. One box holds a cloak of kings, which rounds out Pooh's equipment at last. If it hasn't arisen yet, the question might be asked at this point, who is leaving these gift boxes for you? Some game designer, as far beyond Dungeon Man as Dungeon Man is from Brick Road, we might hypothesize. And sometimes, like the Sword of Kings back in Stonehenge, 
The presents are behind enemies, and behind mathematics. Here, the Chompasaur holds an equally improbable chance of dropping Paula's ultimate weapon, the magic fry pan, as Starman Super did of dropping Pooh's Sword of Kings, one out of 128. So, happy hum hunting. Small as Ness and his friends, look, they zip around the screen at the same rate as ever, so much faster relative to their size. Teleportation beta is a good option if you need a break from the dizzying perspective or are running low on multi-bottle rockets. Soon you'll see the whole screen shake and hear the earth rumble, followed by the gushing of geysers, red and blue. By standing over them, your party can ride the refreshing springs of water for HP and PP replenishments. A good idea, since the inn down here is quite pricey and the dinosaur enemies are ferocious. So you do encounter the dinosaurs at last and they are some of the most powerful enemies in the game. Considering the shift in scale that takes place in the Lost Underworld, ultimately it is for them, so that you can see them better than you could see your own party, and so that they don't take up the whole screen outside of battle. The dinosaurs don't mass and attack, but even one at a time they can feel like mini-boss battles if your party has skimmed through Leeming Hall, to which you can return to level up easily, against the Fobbies, who are the dinos opposite in all ways. The little wooden stake structures that you'll notice around the Lost Underworld hold signs which suggest that you are inside the cage as long as you're outside of them. So remark the tendas who live down here, following lead of the boss. This business of being inside and outside the cage is just one more pot shot the game takes at government lies and corruption which connects back to Mayor Perkle and Onet, and to Monitoli and Foresight, and Pokey, who seems to have learned from and far surpassed each of them in smarm and ambition, has been sighted around the enclosures, within a cave, most of which consists of that abyssal background darkness around the places one can go in RPGs. You see a smashed-up machine, which might recall a Mr. Saturn, and the helicopter or Skyrunner last seen wrecked, in summers, and deep darkness, respectively. So, your neighbor can't be far, as all the storylines draw to their close. As long as you're carrying the tendacrout delicacy conferred upon you by the chief of the tendas up above, the tendas down here will allow you into their village, and take it from you as a gift, with reference to yet another stinky smell that the original gross-out advertising campaign made so much of. Besides the boss, You'll meet the entrepreneur Igo Stika, whose name is apparently another pun on English language learning in Japanese, but in a further irony, one the translators must have missed, transliterating his name as it stands. Which, in passing, reminds me of a wonderful internet thing. Backstroke of the West. You can pause this podcast and Google it immediately, with kudos to Brian Brock for sharing and to his friend for helping make it. That's Backstroke of the West. Igo Stick has been to the same economic superpower referred to by that enterprising businessman who hangs out by the entrance to deep darkness. And he is willing to share his knowledge. He'll act as an ATM, with the catch that his handling fee will be equal to the amount withdrawn, so much like the snorkeler in deep darkness. Igo has done one better, though, by getting his friend to play shop with him and to talk up Igo's friendly service to you when you shop there, too. The history between these tendas and those above seems clear enough. 
that these outgoing ones left their shy brethren behind peacefully and went on to explore the lost underworld, as well as the world's economic powers. As we saw, the long arm and invisible hand of globalization are reaching out to the fringes of the innocent Tenda's territory above, whether they're ready or not. So it's a good thing Ness and his friends got to them with the Overcoming Shyness book first. In the difference between Igo's service of essentially selling you your own money and the Tenda shopkeeper above who uses the Horn of Life as currency because he likes it, we get a concise image of the whimsical march of the market. It's a small glimpse of history, one of the few in the game, along with remarks about Monotoli's rise by the people in Forside, and allusions to a periodic apocal invasion of evil recorded in the hieroglyphs, but even that is more than most games even gesture at. The most important person here, though, is neither the KG boss nor the world-wise Igo, but the big talking rock, the one you've heard so much about. And as it explains, the importance of history lies in its overlap with Ness's destiny. To quote at more length, You finally came, Ness. Finally, you talked to me. Listen, Ness, I'm going to tell you something very important. You may want to take notes. Ready? You're the chosen one. Your destiny is not only yours. It's the destiny of the whole universe. There will be a time in which all of you in the universe will overlap each other. It's not necessary to understand now. Do you remember in Onet, Giant Step in Onet, that is one of your sanctuary. It is a spot which gives you power and allows you to realize all your skills. There was a monster that protected it. That monster was influenced by the power of the place. You must have beaten those monsters. You must reach all of the eight power spots in the world. When the sound stone records the melodies of all eight power spots, you can finally see your world. I'll tell you all of the power spots. Giant Step in Onet. Lilliput Steps in Peaceful Rest Valley near Tucson. Milky Well in Grapefruit Falls in Saturn Valley. Rainy Circle found by Jeff in Winters. Magnet Hill at the edge of the city in Forside. Pink Cloud, which Pooh knows. And Lumine Hole, where the Shining Lichen lives in the cave. A new place is going to be opened up to you. Fire Spring, located southwest of here. Listen to the melodies of all eight power spots. If you do not fail, you may upset Giga's plans. Understand this. The time will come. The time when the destiny of you and the whole universe will overlap. It is fast approaching. Number seven, Lumine Hole, as The Rock says, is apparently an alternative translation to Lumine Hall, so there's some inconsistency there, but thematically anyway it fits with The Rock's message. The overlap is at hand. And plainly, it is perfectly correct. You don't need to understand your destiny in order to accomplish it. By its nature, destiny seems to be the sort of thing that escapes logical comprehension. Most likely, players don't need the rock's list of sanctuary spots either. It is helpful to have them numbered out like that, though what it looks like is that it's possible to reach this point in the game having completed only two of them, number one giant step and number seven looming hole. In practice, 
Most are not far off the path that you take progressing through the game's different areas. Still, it's interesting that you can complete them in almost any order, and that this aspect of the game runs largely parallel to and separate from your geographical progress through the adventure. We'll consider this in more detail next time, when we come to Fire Spring and at the threshold of Magicant. Until then, take care.